0: Today, we're going to talk about what we do wrong when we seek God's will. And so what we're going to do is we're kind of going to deconstruct some bad understanding of seeking God's will. And uh, you've got to come back tomorrow because we're going to rebuild that again. And we're going to say a lot of positive things and going to talk about guidance and talk about how to do what God wants us to do and things of that nature. So today, I am for you. I want to represent the Bible clearly. For you, I want Jesus to teach us. Um, and and I might say things that upset you. I might not answer all of your questions. My time is your time. Uh, I, I live in Isaac's house. I don't live there. I'm temporarily housed in Isaac's house, which is right next to the Promised Land. My wife and kids and I just like to sit in the driveway and play. Come over there, ask us questions. Uh, if if I say anything that you're like, you yeah, know, doesn't sound right, that doesn't square with my experience, I'm not sure. So please, please, please. My time is yours. Take advantage of that. That's really true of all the campus ministers here, but especially with regard to this seminar. Um, The reason I assume that y'all are here is because my blurb in there was awesome um, and sarcastic. I was the only person that took the sarcastic approach to blurbing his seminar. But um, no, the reason I assume y'all are here is because we're all making decisions, and making decisions is hard. And you have, especially right now, college is this time where these kind of really important decisions all kind of come to bear at the same moment. You're young, you're thinking about (laughs) dating and marriage, even though you're not supposed to say you're thinking about marriage while you're dating because that gets people too serious too quickly. But you're thinking about those kind of decisions, you're thinking about your major, and you're thinking about your major with regard to your career. Every day you're thinking about daily decisions about things, about where you're going to be involved on campus socially, who you're going to hang out with. And, and it just goes on and on. You're thinking about your roommate situations for next year. And these are all difficult decisions. They're gray. There's a lot of gray in life. There's some black and white issues. God's law is very clear on black and white issues. But then there are a lot of just gray things. Do I live with this person or this person? Do I choose this major or this major? And what we want to do, and the reason I assume you're here is because you're facing all those decisions. And we want guidance. And so my goal today is to talk about the way to not do that, the way to not seek guidance, the wrong ways to seek God's will, and tomorrow, the right way to seek God's will. And this is, this is my point in all of this. So if you get frustrated with me, remember, this is actually what I'm aiming for. And this sounds simple, but it's actually hard to believe. If you are in Christ, if you're a believer here, if you're a non-believer, you're kind of actually looking in on an in-house conversation that I think is good for you to look in on. I'm glad you're here. If you're a believer, this is what I want to convince you of. Jesus likes you, and He likes it when you do things you like. And I think a lot of times we actually don't believe it. He just really likes you, and He enjoys it when you do things that you like to do. It's what friends do. They enjoy it when their friends are happy. And that's what, if nothing else, that's what I'm saying for the next two days. Um, to begin, I kind of wanted to go through Scripture real briefly and kind of couch our discussion in some of the promises of Scripture with regard to having guidance to seeking God's will. And the first one is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Some of you all might be familiar with that passage. Your, script, your campus minister might talk about it a bunch when he is talking about, um, when he's talking about Scripture, when he's talking about the inerrancy of God's Word, the helpfulness of God's Word. And those, those verses go like this. All Scripture... Is breathed out by God, and it's useful for teaching, it's useful for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be mature and equipped, and this is the catch, this is the phrase we're focusing on, equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. God's Word is sufficient to prepare you for every good thing you're supposed to do in life. That's God's promise. It's an explicit statement of how sufficient Scripture is. That everything you need for life and faith is in Scripture. James 1.5 is also a verse that a lot of times people cite when they're talking about seeking God's wisdom and seeking His will. And it says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And here's how He gives to you wisdom. Generously. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. This is James 1.5. If you lack wisdom, ask God. He will give it to you generously. He gives it to all who ask. And it's not, and it will probably be given. It might be given. It will be given. God will give you wisdom without fail, he is trustworthy. These are His promises. We can trust Him. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 is another verse people often look at when they're talking about counsel, about guidance, about seeking God's will. It's a great one. It's the first verse I taught my children to memorize. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your understanding and in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Trust God. Lean not on your understanding, which tells us a little bit about what trust is. Part of trust is remembering you don't know everything. And he's going to make your path straight. Lastly, Psalm 32.8. I will instruct you and I will teach you. Not I might instruct you or I possibly could teach you. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Those are the promises of God's scripture. That's just a summary. There's certainly more than that. And, and to kind of give you the way these have been distilled into theological statements, the Belgic Confession, one of the Reformed Confessions, says this in Article 7. It starts off this way. It says, We believe that the Holy Scriptures fully contain the will of God. Fully. You're catching that word, encompassing everything. The full will of God is contained. In the Bible, the full will of God for your life. The Westminster Confession, paragraph 6, chapter 1. The whole counsel of God, not most of it, but the whole counsel of God concerning all things, not some of the things, not most of the things, but all of the things that are necessary for His own glory, that are necessary for man's salvation, that are necessary for faith, and for life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Another way of saying that is it's either very explicit in Scripture or it's implicit in Scripture. Point being, the whole counsel of God for all things necessary for His glory, your salvation, for faith, and for life is all set down in Scripture. God promises to prepare you for every good work, to give you wisdom without fail when you ask to make your path straight and to teach you in the way that you should go. And theologians have summarized it to say the Bible contains the full will of God, His whole counsel concerning all things, whether found explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. I hope you're catching the superlatives of all of those statements. Because they're lofty promises. And they're assuring promises if they're true, and that's what we want to explore for the next two days. Are they true? Can we really trust God? So in light of those promises, we're asking the question, how do we discern the will of God if it's all set down in Scripture? That's our question for the next two days. And to kind of introduce the problem, I want to tell you two brief stories about friends of mine who sought the will of God in different ways that maybe are indicative of different ways you've sought the will of God. The first one is um, a guy named Harris from several years ago when I was involved in another campus ministry. He was the music leader there. Uh, his, he did not come from wealth. He couldn't just buy a Taylor guitar on eBay anytime he wanted. But he wanted a new guitar. His old guitar is wearing out. I don't know anything about guitars that no guitars wear out. They seem like they go forever. But he needed a new guitar. He prayed, which is good and appropriate, to God. And he just thought, I really want this guitar, but I don't have any way to pay for it. Right, so there's some some providential circumstances that inhibit him from paying for it. So he prays and prays and prays, and he gets a credit card application in the mail, right? Where you get this guaranteed credit line, you know, thousand dollars for the platinum plus card, whatever it is, and he thinks this is it. This is the way God wants me to buy a guitar. So he goes and talks to his campus minister, and his. Brings that to his campus minister. I've been praying for a guitar. I have no way to pay for it. And God put a credit card application in my mailbox. Because nobody just randomly gets a credit card application in their mailbox, right? Goes and talks to the campus minister. And the campus minister says, Harris, how much do you owe in your current credit card? He says, well, I'm still paying it off. He has about $1,500. He says, Harris... It is actually sin for you to go and buy something you can't pay for to incur a debt that you have no means for paying for. This is a scriptural principle. You can't do it. This is not God speaking. He's distraught. He's torn up about it. He's struggling about it. He walks away from that conversation. Goes and sits on a bench in the quad at the campus. And just, he's going to pray his heart out. Pray his heart out. So he pray. He puts his head down, and he prays Jesus I want this guitar. I want it for leading worship, right? Good reasons. All this kind of stuff. Please provide for me. Tell me you want this guitar for me. And so he's praying on the bench, hands in his forehead like this, and he's uh, just praying, praying, praying. And he opens his eyes, and there's a guitar pick on the ground between his feet. Boom, right? Sign from God. Goes into debt, buys the guitar. Second story a friend of mine at a Christian camp, a co-ed Christian camp. co Christian camps, you always have to have crushes. That's kind of part of the ethos of co-ed Christian camps. Everybody's crushing out on everybody all the time because you see everybody in your best light because you're excited the whole time and everything. You don't have to deal with each other in daily life and real life. So you think everybody has character when you're at Christian camp. Um, they're at the Christian camp, and Laura is crushing on Brad. And she's praying to Jesus... I think he's the one. I think he's the one. Jesus, will you give me a sign? Jesus, will you give me a sign? All this kind of stuff. Seeking God's will, you should pray that prayer. It's good. Pray pray for your spouse. Um, Brad's working the ropes course one day, and Laura's in charge of getting refreshments for all the staff people. She goes around and takes orders, and Brad says, hey, will you get me some water? And she thought, okay, you know, it's... You know, she wanted to do something thoughtful for him. So she went and got all the refreshments and everybody knew. He was like, Brad was one of these milk guys, you know, that drink whole milk and is all self-righteous about it. And everybody talks about it and jokes about it all the time. And uh, she thought, you know, here's a flirtatious way to kind of say, hey, I know you. You know, just kind of throw something out there. So she pours him a tall, cold glass of milk and brings it out to him. And he's so excited. He's like, I just want water, but you gave me milk. I love milk. You know, they got to flirt and everything. And she was so excited about it. That night... This is her quiet time verse, no lie. Judges four eighteen, And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk <laughs> and gave him a drink and covered him. I mean, how is that not the Word of God, right? How is it not abundantly clear now that Laura and Brad will marry? That's literally where she stopped reading. Let me read for you the next two verses. And he said to her... I mean, she's like weeping right now because God has spoken so clearly to her, you know? I mean... uh, Verse 21, and he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes in and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. Verse 20, uh, that's verse 20, verse 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. It's a good thing she didn't keep reading if she was reading the Bible in that way, right? (laughs) They never went out on a single date, if you're wondering. But at that moment, she was utterly convinced that God had revealed his will to her. Laura didn't marry Brad. Harris went into sin when he went into debt. And if those aren't indicators of the will of God, what is the will of God for us? And how do we learn it? And here's an interesting fact. Um, I, I have four books that I'll recommend actually at the end of today um, that I think y'all would enjoy. But from one of the books, from Bruce Waltke's book on finding the will of God, 80% of the ancient Near Eastern texts that archaeologists dig up deal with divining or seeking the will of pagan gods. 80% of the texts are always about figuring out the will of God's through different pagan rituals and all that kind of stuff. There are essentially no Christian books dealing with that until the 1950s. Christianity is the only religion that doesn't have ancient texts with regard to that, and they don't even show up until about 60 years ago, period. And so the question really is, if all the ancient religions were obsessed with divining the will of their deity, of their gods, finding out the future, why is it actually not until the last 50 years that Christians started doing that? Or another way of saying it, why is it for the bulk of human history? Christians were never obsessed with this. The way we think about, and this is actually Walkie's argument, and the title of the book is Finding the Will of God, a Pagan Notion. The way we think about and seek God's will a lot of the times, not all the times, a lot of the times actually has more in common with pagan witchcraft rituals than it does with biblical Christianity. I know those sound like strong words, but I actually mean them. And oftentimes the reason that we actually pursue it those ways has more to do with the fact that we're actually perfectionists and control freaks, and actually don't trust Jesus to take care of us Which is another way of saying unbelief. We don't think God has done or said enough. We don't believe scripture when it says it can prepare us for every good work. That the whole counsel of God concerning all things we need is there. We don't think God's said enough. We're disappointed. So literally what has happened in the last 50 years to a large degree is we've actually co-opted practices from witchcraft. Yes, I said witchcraft and from paganism, and use those, we baptize them with some Christian words, and we use those to seek out the will of God. Here's actually my thesis argument for today. Harry Potter is not, is what, is not what is bringing witchcraft into the church. Read Harry Potter. It's wonderful. What's bringing witchcraft in the church... I know you're thinking I'm using strong language. I actually mean it, but I'm not trying to be over the top. What's bringing witchcraft in the church is actually the way we think about and talk about God's will a lot of the times. The language that kind of, essentially what we think is, God dropped the ball. He didn't give me everything I needed. Right? So I've got to do some stuff to get him to tell me what I'm supposed to do. Okay, that's a dumbed-down way of describing paganism and witchcraft. Do some stuff so that the gods will tell you what to do. You initiate their response by doing some things, rattling some bones, shaking some sticks, and then they'll tell you what to do. The kind of language that permeates a lot of this is Again, this is just the language that's popular with this kind of thinking is people, are you experiencing God's best for you right now? Right? You haven't found out what His will is, so you're not experiencing His best for you right now, which is in contradiction to Scripture. If you're a Christian, you actually believe you're not are experiencing God's best for you right now. But a lot of times this will language descends into that. Are you experiencing God's best for you right now? Let me show you how. Another other kind of language is are you at the center of God's will? Here's the center. Where are you? How far out are you? How can you get into God's will? And what I want to do on your outline, go into verse 3, is kind of answer that question, why are we so desperate to find God's will for our life? And to begin to do it, I want to look at some of the ways that we can oftentimes go about doing it. And the first one, much like our friends Laura and Brad, and much like Harris, we look for signs. And by signs, I mean a physical manifestation of some kind of phenomenon, like the guitar pick on the ground. And seeing that or experiencing that physical manifestation of something, it acts as God's clear, objective direction for a decision. That's what I mean by sign. There's a guitar pick on the ground, right? And that's just God's clear, direct, objective, undeniable direction for your decision. A friend of mine was wondering recently if they should take a job with um, Bank of America. And so he prayed about it. We're all for prayer. We're going to talk about prayer tomorrow. He prayed about it. He wanted God to send him some signs. And he had a friend bring up Bank of America in an unrelated conversation the next day. Right? Same day, he saw someone wearing a T-shirt. That had Bank of America on a college campus. You get all the free credit card t shirts. But that's beside the, the point. Another Bank of America comes up, right? That night, guess what he gets in the mail? Bank of America. Credit card application, incidentally. Don't use credit card applications to discern God's will, if nothing else. Three times that day, prayed for a sign the day before. Is that God speaking? Here's the answer No, it's not. It's not God speaking. The Bible never, ever, ever implies that God will speak to you that way about a decision like that. John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, said this. He was considering taking a call in Warwick, England. And he read from Scripture, Fear not, this is uh, God speaking to Paul, Fear not, Paul. I have many people in this city. And John Newton thought, well, that's it. I'm supposed to go to Warwick. This is God saying, Fear not, John Newton. I have many people in Warwick, England. This is what Newton says. Soon after, he realized that he was not Paul and that Warwick was not Corinth. Life is not this divinely constructed puzzle. It's not religious CSI where you're picking up clues all over the place and God is saying, Hey... I thought about making everything clear to you, but instead I'm going to make it this really subjective chase after clues and your ability to interpret them will be the key to your happiness in life. We treat God's will like we're playing Clue or like we're watching CSI and we have to piece together and then we just declare certain things signs. We get a credit card application in the mail and think, I'm supposed to go in debt for Jesus or I'm supposed to work at Bank of America. Nothing in Scripture supports that. And in Scripture, actually the need for a sign is a mark of immaturity, and Jesus actually even calls it evil. Mark 8:12, he sighed deeply in his spirit. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, you know what? no sign's going to be given." Luke 11:22, when the crowds are increasing, he began to say, "This generation is an evil generation. it seeks for a sign." Do you see how Jesus thinks about needing signs? According to what, according to Jesus, a sign is actually a sign of immaturity. Needing a sign is a mark of immaturity and perhaps even evil. What Walkie says is anytime a believer gets into a behavior pattern where he performs some activity to get God's pleasure and then awaits God's word through some obscure sign, this is what Walkie says, he's in treacherous waters. Christians who use their Bibles like a magic book letting it fall up into a page and randomly pointing to a verse come dangerously close to idol worship. And those who use a promise book with various scripture verses written on cards that are pulled out at random to speak to the need of the moment behave like those involved in paganism. We should stay away from that sort of divination. We are no longer pagans. We should have nothing to do with these pagan behaviors. In the New Testament, they are admonished. They are Jesus literally sighs deeply because they ask for signs. Secondly, nowhere in Scripture does God indicate He's going to give us signs for the kind of decisions we're seeking His will on, for major, marriage, roommate, whatever it is. So we look at signs. second thing we do is we wait for a word from the Lord. Some people hear God speaking and they have a word from the Lord about what they should do. A lot of times we have a word from the Lord about what other people should do, too. Right, I've heard people. I've heard people say, "God told me to move to L.A." God told me to actually tell you not to date so and so, or not to take that job. Now, this is a huge topic, whether or not there are still words of God, and that's for another seminar. But I'm going to say this much: we're just going to read the Bible from Deuteronomy 18:22. If you're going to claim to have a word of God for yourself about God's direction or for others, God requires you to apply this standard. And I think people would be a lot hesitant to claim to have a word from God if they read Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18. The prophet who presumes to speak a word of my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. If you claim to have a word from God, you walk on treacherous ground. If you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord, that the word, uh, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken, simply this. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word doesn't come to pass or come true, that's a word that the Lord hasn't spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. If you claim to have a word from the Lord, the Bible addresses very specifically how to consider that, which is, you shall die if it indeed is not the Lord speaking to you. We should be careful about that kind of language. So if you claim to have a word from the Lord, you're obligated to apply that standard. Secondly, do you ever see God in Scripture talk directly to people and it's not about the redemption of the world and the coming of the Messiah? And the answer is no. It's actually always about that. What you never have in Scripture is a Hebrew 13-year-old boy getting a word from the Lord about whether or not he should marry a certain girl. Or a Hebrew 14-year-old girl getting a word from God about whether or not he should go to Damascus Tech or Galilee A&M. Never happens in Scripture. The words from the Lord are always about Redemption. Another thing we do is we do fleeces. By that, I mean we test a God. You might have heard that kind of language, fleeces. It derives, the language comes from Judges 6, where Gideon, and God has actually already told him, gave him a word from the Lord, uh, already told him, you're supposed to go and defeat the Midianites on behalf of God's people. Take God's people, Old Testament, go to another seminar if you want to talk about why there's a war in the Old Testament. God speaks to him, and Gideon says, how can I know for sure? And so what he does is he applies this test. He says, God, I'm going to set up the parameters. I'm going to lay out a fleece on the ground tonight, and I want you to make the ground wet and the fleece dry. And here's the thing about it. And God actually responds to the test. And then Gideon tests him again, and God responds to the test. Here's the thing about it. When Gideon's doing it, Gideon is asking In the process, in Judges 6, he's saying, God, please don't be angry when I do this. Because what we know is that God's already spoken to Gideon, and he knows what he's supposed to do. And testing God is wrong. And Gideon knows it when he's doing it. So if you're feeling like testing God, at least pray the prayer of Gideon, which is, Dear Jesus, please don't be angry for me doing exactly what you don't want me to do. Deuteronomy six sixteen, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This happens in our lives. I've done this before. I'll do young life if I see a young life t shirt today, right? You kind of say that in your mind in your quiet time in the morning. I will go to the lake with these people if they call me by four o'clock today. That's laying out a fleece. That's saying, God, here's the parameters, I set up the requirements, I'm gonna wait on you to respond, and I'm gonna read that test for your guidance. Here's the other one, peace, right? Number four, peace impulses, inner promptings. That warm, fuzzy thing that we look to, right? I'll go on a mission trip if I, if I receive a peace about it, you know? And, and I don't have a peace about it, so I'm not going to go. Do you know how many times in the Bible that God says your peace, your internal psychological and emotional comfort should be your guide and umpire for decisions in life? Never. That's how many times in the Bible God recommends that. And verses that get misused are verses like Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Saying, here's how you figure out what's right. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's not reading the Bible well. Paul is addressing the church at Colossae. And he's talking about relational peace among the people there. He's not talking about internal psychological warm fuzzy. He's saying, y'all got to get along with each other. Philippians 4.7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding is not psychological warm fuzzy. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding is that the divine God no longer has animosity toward us. It's relational peace between us and Him. That's what blows our minds. It's referring to the reconciliation between us and God. Those are not verses to justify, I have a peace about it theology. And in fact, living by faith actually is often the opposite. You can't read the Scripture, you can't read Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and think He had peace about going to the cross. He's sweating blood because He has so little peace about it. He's literally saying, I don't even understand this moment in Scripture. It's the most confusing moment to me. The second person of the Trinity is telling the first person of the Trinity, I don't want to do what you want me to do. No peace. You're holier than Jesus if you have peace all the time. Paul in Philippians actually says, Ministry is so hard that a lot of times I just wish I could die and go to heaven. Does that sound like somebody who went into ministry because he had a peace about it? Abraham was called to sacrifice his son, Isaac. If you have a peace about that, you're kind of sick. One of the main reasons that there's this kind of guilt-inducing, are you experiencing God's best for you right now? Do you have a peace about it? One of the reasons this is so permeated American Christianity is because we think God's best means that we're going to be happy all the time. And you can't read the Bible and you especially can't read the Psalms and not think that the Christian life has extensive, deep sorrow. Because you know what happens in this world to everyone? Death takes everyone and that's wrong. And that's not peaceful. And that's not wonderful. In this world, everyone is sexually broken. Every single one of our families, even though we wear nice clothes and convince everybody otherwise on Sunday, is messed up. In this world, there's a tiny portion of the population that's grossly overweight and there's a huge portion of the global population that doesn't know if they're going to eat next week. You just can't have a peace about everything in this world as the situation stands right now globally. You can't turn on local news, right? And have a peace about anything. We shouldn't be at peace about what's going on in this world. Our joy and our peace is not in whether or not we had enough quiet times for Jesus to get us into the right sorority. Our joy is in work, in the work of Jesus at the cross. The providences of God right now as he pries our idols out of our hands because we love them so much. And when God is prying idols out of our hand, you know what it feels like? It doesn't feel like peace. It feels like death because our idols are the things that we're holding on to for life. When God is working most powerfully in your life, it's going to feel like death. It's not going to be peaceful. Our joy and our peace, which is experienced sometimes in this life and oftentimes is in this. It's in the anticipation of the resurrection. It's in the anticipation of the Lamb's Feast. That's our joy. That's our peace. In the meantime, this world is hard. It's just really hard. And we grieve now. Because it takes death to get to the resurrection. That's not fun. And in the meantime, we, we do live in light of Romans 8.28 that even though it is hard, God is working all things together together for the good of those who love him. For those who are called according to his purpose. If you're going to, if you're into this Christian anything, peace is often not gonna be a part of your life. It's gonna be hard. The sweetest moments of peace probably come during communion and good preaching. Because those are the moments when for a second you think about the resurrection that everything's gonna be made new again. Don't use peace theology for deciding the will of God. Lastly, and this one's a little bit trickier, providence reading. What I mean by that is God has ordered all the events of creation, and that's called His providence. And sometimes we get in the business of trying to interpret His providence and then kind of predict the future. And we put our subjective, individualistic interpretation on par with Scripture then. And this is what I mean by it. Something like this. Your old laptop is slowing down, right? Because you bought a PC and that was a horrible mistake. And uh, your distant uncle dies and you get $2,000, right? With $2,000, you can get a MacBook, right? You can finally be happy. MacBook is like the Lamb's Feast breaking into this world. Um, I'm just kidding. That's heresy. That was a joke. Um, your laptop's slowing down, you can't work with it, school it's difficult, you're getting viruses all the time. Distant uncle dies, $2,000 in your bank account you never saw coming. Does that mean God is telling you, hey, you're supposed to get a, lo- a new laptop? The answer is, I don't know. There are a lot of other things you can do with $2,000 that would be good, just as good as buying a new laptop. There are a lot of other things you can do with $2,000 that would be a lot better than buying a new laptop. You know what I'm saying? There are circumstances in your life, and God shapes them. And God is sovereign, and they are his providences. But your interpretation of those providences are not necessarily the will of God. Here's one that I actually see often, because this one's hard. Someone, you're supposed to have an important conversation. You need to have maybe potentially a, an, a, a conversation that's going to involve conflict or confrontation, Right? with somebody, your roommate, whatever it is, friend. And y'all's schedules can never meet. Because for a moment you're like, I know I'm supposed to do this. I know to be a friend is to address this person. So I'm going to call them, try to get coffee with them tomorrow. They can't get coffee with you tomorrow. They have midterm, right? All right, can we get coffee on Thursday night? Well, they can't then because they have a function to go to, right? Is that God saying you're not supposed to have this conversation? No, of course not. Just because it's difficult to schedule a time for a difficult conversation is not God saying, well, you know, I don't want you to do that. God's, no, let me be clear God's providences do shape the circumstances of our life. But our personal, subjective in, uh, interpretation of it is not necessarily the will of God for our life. The kind of like, oh, this and this and this, so it must mean I'm supposed to do this. No, not necessarily. And actually to declare your subjective interpretation of the events in your life as, well, then this is the will of God for me. To say, this is the undeniable will of God. And then all of a sudden you bind your conscience, right? And you bind everyone else's conscience. To do that is actually sin, according to Scripture. To say something is God's will... And make other people feel guilty when, in fact, God never declared it to be His will. It's actually sin. And it's adding to God's Word. The way Kevin DeYoung in one of the other books says it is, open door language. Don't assume that the relative ease or difficulty of a situation is God's way of telling you to do one thing or another. Can God open doors for you to do good and necessary things? Yes, He can and He does, and we should give thanks. Are there a lot of things in life that actually require difficulty, pain, and perseverance? Yes, absolutely. Sometimes you need to run into a closed door a lot before it opens. And what we're supposed to do is actually do what Paul does in Scripture and what James recommends to us in James four fifteen. Paul makes plans. Paul doesn't always have to hear from God to plan what he's going to do, and. Acts 18.21, he says, You know what? We're going to try to visit you if the Lord wills it. 1 Corinthians 4.19, I want to visit again if the Lord wills it. James 4.15, don't say, We're definitely going to do this tomorrow. We're definitely going to do that tomorrow. Say, We're going to try to do this tomorrow if the Lord wills it. And see, what they're not saying is they're not saying if the Lord providentially comes out and speaks to me in a burning bush and says I'm supposed to go to Corinth. What they're saying is, you know what, I'm going to do what seems good unless something gets in my way. That's what they're saying. And this is the good news about God being sovereign, about all of God's providential care governing all of creation at all times. The Lord won't fail to stop you. He won't fail to stop you. If you're going somewhere and He doesn't want you there, guess what? You can never, ever, ever get there. We have a story in Scripture about it. He told Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach. Jonah said, no, I'm going to go to Tarshish. Guess what God did? He sent a huge fish to swallow him and swim him back to the seashore and spit him out. If you're supposed to go to L.A., but you're trying to go to Chicago, guess what? You'll never get there. It's impossible. Try. Seriously, try. You can't do it. You're not more powerful than God's providential care. It's actually arrogant for us to think that like, well, God wants me in L.A., but I want to go here, so I'm going to go here. You can't thwart God's will. If God doesn't want you to do something, you won't do it at all. It's not that he puts up a small stop sign It's like, oh, I hope they see it when they're zooming past on the, life, on the highway of life. No, no, no. You just can't do it. Will Spokes was supposed to be here this week to teach the Bible seminar. He's not here. He said, this is what he said months ago, you know, what I'm going to go teach this seminar if the Lord wills it. He planned for it. He prepared for it. Guess what? God didn't want him here. Guess what? He's not here. He had every intention of being here. God didn't let him come. I, this is a confession if there are Carolina people here. They already know this about me. For like five years of my life before I got called to Carolina, I wanted to do RUF at Alabama because I have idolatry and there's all kinds of issues there and I need counseling, but it's another conversation. I wanted to do RUF at Alabama. I grew up in Birmingham. My whole support base is in Alabama. Give this. My dad is in charge of hiring the campus minister at Alabama. Prayed for five years to go to Alabama. Guess where I am? Guess where God wants me? South Carolina. I couldn't get there. I tried as hard as I could for years. I love South Carolina now. That's no slight to the students. Actually, if Alabama opened up tomorrow, I probably wouldn't even go. But don't make me make that decision. (laughs) Why do we seek His will? Why are we prone to these practices? The first one is this. Because we're afraid of getting outside of His will. And the last point really applies to it. You can't get outside of His will. If God wants you to room with Joe instead of Dan, guess who you're going to room with despite your best work? Joe. So don't worry. You can't get outside of His will. God works all things according to the purpose of His will. He's not over in South Korea right now working up revival and coming back here and be like, oh my gosh, you chose chemical engineering instead of mechanical engineering. That never happens. But we're afraid it will. It won't happen. To say that Going to Northwest, oh, I chose Northwestern. I feel like it's a mistake now and I'm supposed to go to Purdue. To say that you're out of God's will because you chose Northwestern over Purdue is actually to say, Jesus had to die for my choice to go to Northwestern. He didn't have to die for that. When you say it was out of God's will, what you're saying is, Jesus had to pay the price for my college decision. He didn't. He paid the price for a lot of things more important than that, but that ain't one of them. Another reason we do it is because we're scared of not being happy and not being fulfilled. We have this plan B fear, right? Sometimes we act as if there's kind of God's best for us and if, if I don't do anything right, if I don't read the signs well, if I don't lay out the fleeces, then I'm going to get like his plan B. I'm going to get his junior varsity spouse for me. So I've got to read everything right. Right? That's completely in contradiction to Scripture. If you are in Christ... This is what Jesus has to say to you. Don't be anxious about your life, about what you'll eat, about what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food. It's more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. This is what he tells you now if you're worried about getting his plan B. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. And yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life. Why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. They don't toil and they don't spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Don't be anxious about anything. Saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after these things. But your Heavenly Father knows you need them all. Romans 8, 32. This is actually really the background of everything we're saying. He who did not spare His own perfect, divine Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him give us graciously All things. Nowhere in the Bible is there. If you read the signs right, I got some good stuff in store, but if you don't, you get plan B. And I've got to be honest, it's not going to be as much fun. He bought you with the price of his son. What do you do with the things that cost you the most? You give them your best. Right? God's not any different. And it's precisely fear and anxiety Jesus is addressing in Matthew 6. It's not going to be okay. There might not be okay. And Jesus is saying, like, look at the flowers. And they're going to be gone tomorrow. How much more will I take care of you? We're afraid of not being happy. We're also afraid of, this is one, this is like a heart-searching one. We're afraid of not, uh, we're actually afraid of taking responsibility for ourselves. And this is where I think some of that peace language kind of seeps into our decisions. I've heard of many breakups. Breakup because God hasn't given me a piece about this relationship. You're blaming God for the fact that you don't want to date him anymore. The reason you don't have a peace about the relationship is because you're making out all the time and you feel guilty. Or the reason you don't have a piece about it is because you don't like him anymore and you don't want to date him. Guess what? That's Okay. Take responsibility for your preferences. That's okay. If we're all more honest with each other instead of trying to blame Jesus for the fact that we don't like our girlfriend or boyfriend anymore, the church would be a lot healthier. It's okay to say, I'm no longer interested in dating you. I enjoyed it. It's okay to say, I don't want to go on that trip. Like, I don't have a piece about it anymore. We're trying to blame God, actually, for decisions and feelings that we have, And we're blaming God because we're people pleasers. And we're like, yeah, I would date you. I really would. I'm all in. But God just didn't give me a piece. Just take responsibility. Seriously. And in the worst case scenarios, we actually use these kind of things to cover over our own immaturity. For backing out of, for instance, backing out of a commitment we made. And we use God's name to actually justify our lack of character. We're afraid of taking responsibilities for ourselves. The other thing is, we don't want to live by faith. We want to live by by sight. This is all of us. We don't want to have to trust Jesus. If he can just tell us the future and all decisions that we make to get there, guess what? We don't need him anymore, right? Jesus calls you to live by faith and not by sight. Sight is I see it, I know it, it's mapped out, I know all decisions to get there. Once you know all that, you don't need Jesus for the rest of your life until you get to the end, like, all right, help me get into this heaven thing. We want him to be instruction manual and not a lover or life giver. Faith is Jesus, you promised to work all things to the good of those who love you. And so I'm just gonna trust you for that. I'm gonna pay my bills. I'm just going to take this job. I'm just going to love this girl. I'm just going to spank these children. I'm just going to, I'm going to give away money. I'm going to serve the church. I'm going to love difficult people and just trust you, Jesus. And that's hard. And we don't want to do that. We want to live by sight instead of faith. And lastly, and this is another one that's tough Jesus, the reason we do it is because Jesus doesn't give us answers to the questions we care about. What actually is interesting is our prayers, in in some sense, we should be praying all the time. I don't want to say that, but Jesus cares about your character and not your paycheck. Jesus is in the business of developing your character. Jesus is in the business of saving souls. He doesn't care. This is really true. He doesn't care if you're a lawyer or a mechanic. That's not what He's in the business of working on in your life. And yet, we're discontent because that's what He's working on and we want Him to tell us which job to take. There's a sense in which our idols are revealed there, right? Okay, Jesus, salvation, redemption, Bible, Word of God, Holy Spirit, lambs, yah, yah, yah. But here's what I need you to really deal with. And the reason that we're so obsessed with all these other things is really because we're idolaters. Go to the idolatry seminar now, right? And we care a little bit about loving Jesus. But mostly what we're stressed out about is money, being around pretty people, and avoiding pain. Now what does this theology do to us? What are the effects of it? i trying to get through this quickly. First of all, it says Scripture is not sufficient. It says Paul lied when he said Scripture can prepare you for every good work. It says Jesus lied when in John 15 he says, All that the Father told me I gave to you. So doesn't believe Jesus or Paul and says, ah, there's God's word, but we need more. One of the ways this comes out is people talk about God uh, giving them a specific verbal call. I need a call to go somewhere. If you came up to Paul and to Abraham and said, hey, I feel like, first of all, this is an interesting language, I, it, I feel like God is calling me. Paul would have never said, I feel like. God is calling me. He was like, hey, remember that time when I went blind immediately and God spoke to me? He didn't have to wonder. Right? But if you went up to Paul and Abraham and say, like, I feel like God's calling me to take this job in Charlotte. This is what they would say to you. I know this is dicey to say things like this. They'd be like, so... Abraham would be like, yeah, I remember that time when I didn't even know who God was, and I was worshiping idols, and all of a sudden he said, Abraham, I'm starting Israel with you today. Abraham would be like, I don't remember when he told me that. Paul would be like, oh, yeah, I remember that time I went blind, and God spoke and said, why are you killing my people? And they would say, what you're saying is you received an inerrant verbal, prophetic, morally binding revelation directly from God apart from Scripture. That's what they thought of when they said, oh yeah, God calling you? I know what you mean. Anthony Bradley, a friend of mine, says this. The Bible doesn't generally use the word calling to justify everyday choices or big life decisions. There are few notable exceptions for a few biblical characters. The Bible, however, does not generally use the word calling in terms of vocations, college tenants, numbering children, whom to marry, house purchases, which city or neighborhood to live in, and so on. The Greek word for calling is only used in the New Testament 11 times, and it's always in reference to divine callings related to salvation and to holy life. You are called. (laughs) Don't mishear me. You're called to trust Jesus and follow Him. That's your calling. Theology forces us, bad theology forces us to add to God's Word. It also incurs false guilt, right? Friends tell you, I feel like God's telling me you shouldn't date them. I feel like God's telling me you shouldn't be involved there. All of a sudden you're guilty. If God spoke it, you actually are guilty. But that's false guilt because guess what? I don't think God told them you shouldn't go to this church over that church. People are taking their opinions, which are good, and you should consider people's opinions, and they're calling them the Word of God. And if they're the Word of God and you go against them, you're incurring guilt. But it's false guilt, because it ain't the Word of God. It's also purely subjective. This is not all a bad thing. Your promptings, your impressions, you can't test them. There's no way to find out if it's God that's telling you to go to Chicago, or if it's indigestion, or if it's the devil. There's no way to tell. And I'm not saying it's wrong to make decisions based on your subjective feelings. We make a lot of decisions based that way. What's wrong is to call your feeling the Word of God. It also produces a life of bondage and confusion. There are these brands of seeking God's will out there that say, ask God if it's His will for every little decision every day. Say, is this your will, guys? Is this your will, guys? Is this your will, guys? That's tyranny. Jesus likes you. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to do the things you like to do as he conforms your character to who he is. It is tyranny and it is confusing to pretend like, oh my gosh, I've got to read all the signs. What if you miss them? Lastly, it requires foolish theology proper. and believes that God has a hidden secret plan for your life that you're supposed to figure out. And it implies that God is sneaky. If God is saving His people and one of the primary purposes for saving His people is then to use them in His mission to defeat sin and evil in the world and bring the kingdom of God into this world... He would never do this because no good general would ever do this. Hey, I want to use you to vanquish this enemy, but here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to send you out on the battlefield. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to make it really confusing. I'm going to set up an obstacle course, and it's going to be a scavenger hunt. You have to work through all the signs. That's horrible military strategy. That's how you lose. God's given you everything you need to do to fulfill his calling on your life. I'm not going to go through all the points the next one, how God's will salt in the Bible. I'll do them briefly. People go to a prophet. It happens in the Old Testament. You have passages down there, Judges 4, 1 Samuel 9, 9. A prophet was God's mouthpiece. Guess what? When they spoke, it was the Word of God. There's this thing called Urim and Thumim. It's these sticks actually that they throw down. The priests would carry them before the army of God and to find out whether or not they should go to battle, they would throw the sticks and they would show up one certain way and they go to battle and they show up another way, certain way and they wouldn't go to battle. It's weird. I know. Go read it. Lots, right? Joshua 18.6, they cast lots. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it's similar to the Urim and Thummim to parcel out the promised land. Lots are cast in First Samuel 10 to anoint the first king of Israel. There are dreams. Genesis 37, Joseph has dreams. Judges 7, Gideon has dreams. Nebuchadnezzar has dreams. There are signs. There's fire from heaven in Judges 6. There's a burning bush in Exodus 3. There's Gideon's fleece, right? There are words. Abraham hears a word from God. Moses hears a word from God. So does Gideon. So God has spoken through these means before in the past. Here's the point. They're all about the preparation of the coming of the Messiah and the redemption of the world and the covenant people of God. Always about that. If you think you are anointed to be the king of God's people, then we should talk. If you're claiming that's what God's telling you, then we should talk because that's what God talks about when he talks in these ways. If you think that you're supposed to lead all of God's people into battle against his enemies, okay, then we're having a serious conversation about God speaking to you. If you're called to enforce the covenant on all of God's people like the prophets were, okay, then it could be God talking to you. See, all of these things have something in common. There are ways in which God is leading His people toward His plan for redemption. They were all about Jesus, and Hebrews 1, 1 tells us that. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us By His Son. Do you see that the writer of Hebrews is what actually Jesus says in all of John 15 and 16. All the Old Testament ways of God communicating, they're not necessary anymore. You don't need them. Because they were always about Jesus and what He's doing and what He's going to do. They were all about Jesus coming to save the world. Here's the conclusion. We'll get ready for next week. God has given you all you need for life and faith in Scripture. God is equipping His saints to be His holy people and His royal priesthood, to be His missionaries to the world. Why would He hide the information you need to accomplish that mission? He doesn't. He doesn't. He didn't spare His own Son for you. How would He not graciously give you all things you cost Him the most, I cost Him the most? Why would He then hold back what we need to continue to live in Him? So what's our response to this? This is it. Repent. Repent of being a control freak and a perfectionist and living in fear. I thought I was fearless until I had children. Now I'm scared to death. And I want God to tell me that they're not going to get hurt. And I'm afraid they will. Our response to this is repent. It's our unbelief that says, if I don't know the future, then God can't take care of me. Because if you're thinking, if I don't know the future, God can't take care of me, what you're really saying is, if I do know the future, I can take care of me. And God, by not telling us every little decision is actually teaching us to trust Him. Sometimes with my girls, I take them to the doctor's office, and sometimes I take them to get ice cream. And sometimes, I don't tell them where I'm going to take them, because the point is not, I don't want you to come with me because I'm going to ice cream. I want you to come with me because you trust me. And a lot of times, that's what God's doing. He's not telling you because He's saying, like, listen, just walk with me and trust me. I don't want you to come because you see the thing I'm dangling out here. Just come with me. And the way we wrongly seek His will is this. We're asking God to help us build our own little risk-avoidance kingdom. And our primary goal is to minimize the risk of pain and minimize the risk of unhappiness. If you signed up for Christianity, if you have already have faith, I'm sorry if someone never told you this. But being a Christian means trusting Jesus and following Jesus and doing what Jesus did. And this is what Jesus did. Who for the joy set before Him, out before Him, He endured the cross. He left home. He served in pain. People didn't like him. And he died. And he tells us following him feels like taking up your cross. There's no peace about that or very little. And it's only the peace we get from remembering the resurrection. If you have peace about that, you are officially holier than Jesus. Because he didn't have peace about that in the garden. That's our model and our lifestyle. This is the good news. You're not good at being a control freak. You're not good at being a perfectionist, but God is. You can seek Him, and all these things will be added unto you, all these anxieties that assail us all the time. He's going to take care of them. Rest in Him. He can handle you. Bring your fears and bring your insecurities and bring your unbelief and bring them to Him and lay them at His feet and see that at the cross, He paid everything to ransom you to Himself. It cost Him everything to buy you. Do you really think that He is not then going to give you all His best for you all the time? All the time? Rest. He died for you. Rest. This now, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, this now is God's best for you. And if you're thinking, okay, that's kind of a disappointment, this is why. And it is a disappointment because sometimes His best is hard because a lot of the times His best is... Here's my best for you. I've got to pry you away from these idols. And that's painful. And it's his best for you. Aren't you glad God is not a people pleaser? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are sovereign even when we don't believe it. That you're working all things to the good of those who love you even when we don't believe it. Dear God, I thank you that you're faithful when we are not. I pray we would find deep comfort there. You know me. Pray, Amen.